Welcome back to the B-Sides with Ariel Sturman. Today's episode is a really interesting one, as I'm joined by Ophir Reshef, CFO of Yotpo, a Bessemer portfolio company, to talk about how Israeli companies, or any others for that matter, can create effective M&A strategies to develop a multi-product experience, expand their total addressable market, all while navigating the resource limitations of being a fast-growing startup. Let's hear what Ophir has to say. So Ophir, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Ariel. Is this your first Bessemer podcast? It's Bessemer my related. first podcast, Bessemer or non-Bessemer. Well, it's, it's really exciting because there's so much to talk about with Yotpo. And, you know, we could talk about your experience going from the investing world to the operational world and leading M&A and strategy now being the CFO of Yotpo at this really exciting juncture of the company where they're a really late stage company with, you know, I think publicly released 100 million plus of ARR. Right. And actually, I've had the pleasure of knowing the company from the seed stage when they raised from Plus Ventures and Explore, Dream, Discover. I was an intern uh, working with Rory Oron in Israel about, I guess, nine years ago. Wow. Yeah. So I met Tomer and Omri at one of their events. And then I joined Stripes Group after school. And I had gotten to know Tomer even better over the course of the Series A and the Series B. Unfortunately, never got to invest into the company. Um but just was always just in love with these founders. And then when I got to join Bessemer, I was super excited because, wow, I finally get to work with, with the Yachtpo team. So yeah, it, it was the founders were definitely a big reason that uh, had me uh, join the company after Adam had introduced us. And I think that's, you know, it's telling as a VC, uh, as a former VC, to be able to kind of pick and choose the company based on the people that you're working with, I know that. Especially if you invest for the very long term, you can predict what's going to happen with the business in two or three years. But if you hold a, a company for seven or 10 years, it's just impossible to predict what will actually happen in the business environment, in the market, in the business itself. Uh, so you really need to bet on the long-term drivers that uh, keep the business successful no matter what happens. And those are essentially culture and people. Right. I mean, when we invested... When Bessemer invested back in the day, I doubt that we thought this kind of user-generated content reviews company would essentially become a vertical SaaS player in the e-commerce landscape. But what's unique about Yotpo, and the thing I wanted to talk about with you today, is the M&A strategy that Yotpo's had for several years now. Your role at Yotpo over the last few years, maybe you could just tell a bit about it and, and your involvement on the M&A side too. Sure. So I joined Yotpo in uh, late 2016. Uh, the business was doing great as an early stage uh, company growing from about 5 to 15 of ARR in one year. Um, but at the same time, the founders and the board were forward looking enough to, to see that there, there could be a, a mismatch between the very high expectations and aggressiveness of the company to become a um, durable, long term, sustainable public company and the market opportunity that it was addressing at the time, remember e-commerce 2016 pre-COVID wasn't that, that large and essentially all Yotpo was doing is, is a reviews application. So how big can you become with, with a reviews application for one vertical? And so it was clear that Yotpo needed to expand um, its target market or even its, uh, its vision or, or the, the very definition of Yotpo, what Yotpo is. Um, and it's super hard to do that while you're busy running a, a hyper growth business. So they realized maybe we need to bring someone, someone else who will help the management team uh, think through uh, the change and the, and, the, and the expansion. And this is how uh, I got introduced to, uh, 
you had both via Bessemer and and joined as a VP of strategy. Um, And then I spent about a year uh, looking at all kinds of different um, paths with the the senior management. Some of them might look um, um, kind of obviously no go now, but at at that time they were like, uh, you know, relevant. And eventually what we decided is that we want to be a marketing platform focused on e-commerce businesses. And we realized that the buyer persona who buys Yotpo also buys 10 to 15 other SaaS solutions that are supposed to help them with the, the marketing. But essentially, they're just not that effective helping because it's so hard to manage so many SaaS solutions, to operate them, to actually afford them, and, and worse, to get them all to work together because they don't speak with each other, they don't share the data, they don't share the content. So we decided, you know, let's be this one unified solution that gets all the important ones at least uh, under one roof and an experience that our customer is, um, is actually looking for. Um, and this is how we kind of set our, our new strategy. And a big part of that was like, okay, this vision is so big that it's clear that we can't build it all. So the next step was like looking into M&A as a way, a way to help us um, fulfill this vision in a reasonable and uh, relevant time to the market. Mm-hmm. So that's really interesting because the first step there, it seemed, was much more focused on, okay, we're going to hit a TAM, a total addressable market wall at some point. If we're just serving reviews to the e-commerce sector, that may not be enough to drive this unicorn or eventually public outcome. So strategy came in and you came into the business and said, okay, how can we expand TAM? And then I guess you said the second decision was, all right, now how do we do that? We've identified the opportunities within the marketing stack that we want to expand into. And now you have this buy versus build decision. You'd been doing a lot of partnering, I imagine, with integrations and right. partnerships. Um, and then what, what was the first acquisition that Yapo made? Yeah, so maybe before that, it, it's absolutely right that uh, TAM expansion was a big driver. Um, but at the same time, it was really important for us to look at um, acquisition opportunities or general expansion opportunities that are synergistic. I don't think a startup can just expand TAM by doing something completely different in addition to what you're doing right now. I mean, maybe you know, Google at some stage can buy YouTube and do something completely different, but it's not the stage of a $15 million ARR business. Um, and the synergy is important for um, management attention and focus, not to be doing two completely different things. It's also important for the health and unit economics of the business. If you're doing something completely se- separate, you, you have essentially two different P&Ls. But if you add more products that are sold to the same customer base, you're getting go-to-market synergies. You're actually improving your, your win rates, your AOV, your retention rates, et cetera, et cetera. So you're getting one plus one equals three. Um, and once we realized that we want something synergistic, we, you know, we mapped the different categories that our existing customers are already using and buying. Um, this, is what, this was our way to make sure there is a first go-to-market synergy. We're already selling to them, so let's sell more products to the same person rather than develop a, a new go-to-market engine for that. Right, so this wasn't, hey, let's develop a product now for consumers to manage their social reviews or whatever. It was, we're selling to businesses, we're selling to e-commerce businesses, and how can we upsell them on additional, or cross-sell them to additional products and kind of improve the net retention 
over time or the landing exactly. contracts over time. Oddly, it's even more synergistic than some other opportunities we considered, like you know, let's sell a review solution to local businesses or to doctors or what have you. I mean, it might sound like we're a reviews company, so it makes sense for us to do reviews for other verticals, but it's a completely different type of customers. It requires completely different go-to-market motion and in large parts also a different product. So they're not so synergistic, but you, when you sell other products that our customers are already buying, and we already know them, we understand what we need to build, we know how to sell to them, and eventually it translates to, to financial metrics that are uh, really have improved significantly since we made um, the acquisition. Did you guys consider like the, the doctor reviews route or the local services retailer route? Oh yeah, I, I personally spoke with many doctors in the US to understand if there is a pain point around that. There's a company I remember called Real Self, I think, that focuses, it, it's within doctor reviews, it's just on cosmetic surgeons. And, and these businesses can be really, really compelling as vertically focused in, in particular areas, but it requires a super sharp, keen attention to that consumer and their needs. And I guess when, when you're looking at Yapa, you're saying, okay, well, we have this consumer and these are real businesses that seemingly are going to continue to grow because you believe in the e-commerce trends, you believe in this kind of entire wave of, of digitization and you know, omni-channel businesses. And so how can we just serve them more and provide them more value. And I guess that's that was the first strategic decision made on this expansion, on this TAM expansion roadmap. Exactly. And, you know, there are competitors almost anywhere. If there is a pain point, there must be someone who's solving it, unless it's like something that's undergoing a huge disruption. So the, the thing is also, uh, how, how are we going to win? Um, because it's always, it's never like completely um, kind of blue sky and green field, et cetera, et cetera. So, and Having products that are adjacent, meaning that we can build synergies and give our customers more value if they use more than one product, that's a really important way to win, especially when you're a newcomer and you're competing against um, players who are established and, and have more mature product and better understanding of the new markets you, market you're entering. Um, so this is how we, we kind of came about, like we, we mapped the different categories, figure out what's large, what's important. And the next question was like, what's synergistic? What is like really adjacent to reviews that it makes sense for our customers that both of these solutions will be provided by one vendor. And it makes sense for the marketer to operate it in one way. And it also makes sense for the end consumer to get a great experience because uh, these two products work together. This is how we got to um, the loyalty category. And um, loyalty is something that in the minds of our customers is very much uh, attached to reviews. They expect the consumer to write a review if you like the product. They expect them to sign up to the loyalty program. They give them bonus points if they submit the reviews, et cetera, et cetera. Very, I mean, that makes, that makes a ton of sense. And so when you came across this first acquisition, you said was what, three and a half, three years ago? Yeah, August 18. Okay, almost four years ago. Um, was that a proactive search for loyalty and reviews, uh, loyalty and referrals? And um, was it something your customers were asking for or just an opportunity? Or did someone say, hey, this is a great team, I think in, in Boston or so, and, and uh, you guys should check them out. They're in the same space as you guys and, and maybe an opportunity. We first decided on the category um, and uh, most of it is synergy and definitely also translated into customer requests. Less asking Yotpo to do that because usually customers will not associate you with a completely different product category until you go there. But what we did see in the data that there were plenty of integration requests, which mm -hmm. means our customers are using it and care about it. 
Um, and then we mapped the different companies in the space and there were actually three candidates and we spoke with all three and ended up uh, acquiring the one that was the best opportunity for us. And, and you had the boards kind of buy-in already because of that initial decision to say, okay, we, we want to increase TAM, we want to increase the ACV, the average contract values for our customers. Exactly, exactly. It also helped that it was a relatively small company, so the, um, the acquisition became accretive pretty quickly. And it goes to another question that some of our larger companies also that are thinking about M&A is, and maybe this is a whole other topic, but when you buy a company, you're not just buying the product and the tech and the need to integrate it, but you're also buying the existing P&L and the existing kind of financial performance of the business. And let's say you've got a business that naturally has X percent net retention and a certain level of average contract values. Now you buy this new business that has, let's say, less net retention and less ACV, lower ACV. How do you kind of reconcile the fact that your business is going to look a little bit less healthy? You know, you'll see a jump in revenue or a small one, I guess. But the core underlying unit economics might look different for the time being. How do you reconcile that? Yeah, so it depends on the acquisition. In, in the first acquisition that we talked about, it was, um, it was a small company. Like we were already uh, over $30 million and uh, we acquired a company that was like one, one and a half, um, small, like 10, 15 people. Uh, so we didn't have material impact on our uh, P&L or unit economics um, at the time of the acquisition. And over time, pretty quickly, we integrated it with our uh, go-to-market motion and we actually got an, an improvement, like the acceleration to the sales, uh, higher AOV, higher efficiency, et cetera, et cetera. So that was easier to, um, to digest. In the second case, we acquired another company in uh, January 2020, which was a more established business, close to $10 million of revenue. In that case, definitely it already created a, a blended um, economics and that uh, were, were different, some good in some ways, worse in, in other ways, uh, but it created complications and the need to measure um, each business separately well to understand that each is trending well as the mix uh, changes over time. And I guess until the point of true integration where you start having that cross-sell and upsell dynamic to the customers and then the, the two businesses eventually converge, I mean, is that... Is that the idea, or you kind of continue two years later to manage them separately? They do converge. Uh, so from um, a customer-based standpoint, they started with um, somewhat of a, of a shift, like our, our customers were larger, and the business we acquired tend to cater for the smaller customers. So we brought it up market over time, and the more we bring it up market, the more overlap that there is. Uh, so now after like two and a half years, we can say, okay, we're actually selling to the same customer base and it's one offering and we bundle them and we give the same type of a service model through the same person. But it was definitely a process that took us a long time. Mm -hmm. And from an integration standpoint, and we can have a whole other topic on PMI, post-merger integrations, how much resource attention does it take from signing the initial deal, closing the deal, and then integrating the companies culturally, technologically, and then into the sales and marketing I mean, you can't just throw out a number of, of resources, but I'm sure that that's critical to the decision of whether or not you're going to actually do this acquisition. Yeah. So it varies and also depends on your approach. So the first company we acquired was just subscale, 10, 15 people. Uh, the, our approach was basically to blend it in the organization as fast as possible because we didn't believe it has enough of a 
critical mass to sustain as an independent business unit within Yotro. So we moved the go-to-market almost immediately at the acquisition, and we built R&D teams um, in Israel where the rest of our R&D was, and, um, and gradually moved the R&D as well from, from Boston where the target was to, to Israel. And after only a year, I would say, there was no swell eventually. Like the, 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 uh, the entity that we acquired basically didn't exist. It all uh, subsided into uh, Yotpo. The second company we acquired, SMS Bump, was a different story. It was like um, a larger business, fast-growing, uh, with R&D that had the right scale, and we actually wanted to double down on, the, on that R&D because it was very um, high-quality um, in a lower-cost location in times when uh, R&D resources are scarce. Uh, so this we, we maintained, we still do maintain the, the, the entity and, and, and grow it very fast. Some functions move to functional reporting. So let's say the R&D reports to our uh, um, entire R&D organization to have roll up to the VP of R&D. Others were um, independent. Um, and it's a gradual process. It's a gradual process. It still are, isn't entirely complete uh, two and a half years later. And honestly, the cultural integration is uh, can take even longer, especially in uh, COVID days when it was harder to fly and get people to, to meet um, in person. It, it took us longer than we thought to um, get SMS Bump to uh, adopt the identity of Yotpo. And, and for Yotpo, culture is, it has been from the very beginning just an integral part of the organization. Oh, absolutely. I would say culture is number one consideration in, in many things that we do, but definitely in, in M&A, we've said no to so many different opportunities and uh, the the two yeses that we said in terms of acquisition, the number one criteria for them that we felt it was like a great great culture fit and great culture alignment with the founders and the target company. Mm-hmm. I want to go back to the Swell acquisition real quick. When you think about its subscale, great product, how much replatforming technologically needs to go into integrating it into the Yotpo, you know, unified data platform that kind of drives the core of the business. So at that time, we were um, driving fast in our racing car and changing the engine at the same time. So we're kind of uh, building the platform while integrating the new acquisition into it. Uh, one of the reasons we decided to win acquisitions was that the value comes from our platform. Uh, the synergy comes from our platform. The platform requires tons of resources. So we wouldn't be able to build the platform and all the products that are connected to it at the same time. So we shifted our focus to building the platform and, and relied on acquisitions for the next two uh, products. So it was a complicated um, effort for sure. Um, and um, in hindsight, it might have been even better to um, start uh, rewriting the product from scratch. Like it is a, It's not an easy integration product to take um, an existing product and... Uh, and then connect it um, to to a platform, and it all depends on the maturity of the product. But at that time, this was a product with a small team having built it, might have been an easier effort uh, to to actually rebuild it on top of the platform rather than trying to integrate. Mm-hmm. But has the, this rebuilding of the Otpo platform enabled future kind of M and A and integration to be that much easier? Oh yeah, absolutely. We we created a really strong infrastructure, so the next product was much easier to integrate, and then. 
products that we built were extremely fast and still are extremely fast built because they use so many shared resources and components that the platform provides them. Mm-hmm. Looking forward, will M&A continue to be an, a part of Yapo's strategy or you know, product expansion is always part of any SaaS company's strategy? So yes and no. I think it was critical for us at the stage that we were to rely on acquisitions because we just couldn't scale R&D ourselves to build the platform and the products. And now it's a little bit different. Now we're a much larger organization. We already are building new products ourselves. Uh, So we don't see a critical need to uh, buy a company to complete our product portfolio. Uh, So the way we're thinking about it right now is more opportunistic. So if there is a product category that is is of secondary importance, we might buy it uh, even though we will not build it. If there is a product category where uh, we have a product or are building a product, but there is like particularly interesting complementary product or even competing product that we can um, take the take some elements of the product or just the customers or what have you, uh, we'll look into it, but it's not core to our success anymore. Mm-hmm. And you have... Uh, you know, investors like me randomly sending you like, hey, you saw this really cool e-commerce tool company. Use it on your radar. I mean, that, how often is that going to translate to an M&A opportunity? Uh, so we love looking at those opportunities, but we've seen many hundreds and only acquired two. So it's might, might even be a lower conversion rate than a VC meeting uh, right. prospects for the first time. It's like a conversion rate of a conversion rate. So it's even lower. Exactly. Um is an M&A strategy for everyone who has hundreds of million dollars in the bank? Um, are you, do you expect the Israeli ecosystem to develop more and more M&A expertise as these companies grow? I don't think m and is for everyone. I think um, there are some companies where it's too big of a distraction. Say if you're growing 100% organically, unless there is an imminent need for M&A, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't look for it because the, there is a huge alternative cost of management attention integration that's just not worth it when you're growing 100%. I think M&A is more for companies that are growing 30 40 50% uh, type of year-over-year growth. Another aspect is the um, execution. I just think post-merger integration is hard. Uh, we've been lucky enough to do it successfully two times. It's partly because of the strong culture that we have, partly because we've been very picky in the acquisition, partly because we're very in oper- very much an operations-minded company. Um, so we had some really strong people. Some of them were first-timers but still did a phenomenal job doing the, the integration. But I would say some companies for sure are, might, might not have these capabilities. And for them, I would, I would probably be more careful if I were them. Mm-hmm. Well, the hope is that these companies growing 100, 150% year-over-year organically We'll get to the point where that's no longer realistic. I mean, in a dream world, they'll continue. But at some point, they w- if Israeli companies stay independent longer, they will see their revenue growth compressed down to the 50, 40, 30% range you see in the public markets or even lower. And so, you know, I, I do imagine, and, and we see this in our portfolio, you know, Fiverr, one of our public portfolio companies has made a handful of acquisitions as well. And they kind of have, have a working M&A engine too, um, I, I do see more and more companies considering it, but I think the part of the problem is you have earlier stage companies considering it too, considering M&A. And that sort of, 
hey guys, we have so much to do right now. Like that sounds really accretive, but to your point, you don't realize the amount of management attention and resource allocation it's going to take not just to get the deal done, but or not just for the post-merger integration, but also to get the deal done. And that, that's a huge distraction. Absolutely. And and by senior management, I mean, part of our success in M&A is that we're really pulled together all the senior leadership team, the founders, um, not only to do due diligence these companies, but also to sell to them, right? To like founders, to get them to sell their business and join another company and actually do a deal that is partly equity. So they also need to believe that the equity is going to be worth it for them in the long term. That's tons of work. And if you do it 10 or 20 or 30 times for every time that you actually get a deal done, that's that's a tremendous mm-hmm. um, kind of distraction to, to management and, and definitely something to, to consider. Mm-hmm. I would say for earlier stage companies, it's worth considering two types of, uh, of M&A. One is like really acqui-hire oriented. Like if you're buying three guys and there is no history and no product or you know, maybe just a tiny technology that you can put in an R&D team and forget this acquisition happened after the documentation is over, that's fine. The other one is like super strategic, which was our case. Like if, if your strategy necessitates M&A, otherwise just you will not right. be able to pursue your strategy, then... With all the effort and and uh, distraction that it involves, you just have to do it. Right. If you're a fintech company that needs to buy a specific banking license in a geography, and there's a company that already has it, and it's selling for pennies on the dollar, exactly. Maybe that's strategic enough where it, it's worth the headache because that'll actually accelerate your roadmap and the resource allocation. Exactly. I think it's even less a matter of uh, of price. Honestly, it's uh, like early stage is really about maximizing the the probability of success that's like the biggest creator of value more than if you, if you, yeah. if you buy a little bit below market price yeah. and focus i mean it's just like the opportunity cost of where you could be spending your time and energy is just tremendous Absolutely. at the early stage um very practically did you guys did yapo use any kind of bankers or external advisors when kind of valuing these m&a opportunities or putting together the deals we did not. Maybe it was just a, a little bit of arrogance on our part because we had uh, no experience doing <laughs> M&A <laughs> prior to that or, or, or maybe I felt that my, um, my short VC experience was enough to, to think that I know how to make deals. But uh, I hope no one trusts me with that. <laughs> <laughs> we, didn't, we did not, but you know, it ended up being, um, being a good decision. And, and, and more than that, I think... At least in our space, I don't know if it equally applies to M and A and you know fintech or or other industries. But in our space, it's it's small tech companies uh, that move fast with founders that want to get to work and they don't like this whole engagement around M and A and documents they need to provide and and legal and numbers and and audits and all of that. So just being able to move extremely fast, uh, cut down the process, um, cut down the timeline because really. Time kills deals. So being able to do the process really fast and execute it and instill confidence in them that it's happening, that's really, really important. If you've got a banker between you and the other side, everything just get becomes slow and complicated. And, and honestly, a culture misfit because we, we are a company that moves fast. We want to acquire companies that move fast. And if they are okay with a banker-led process that is you know slower and heavier, that raises a question to the culture. Right. I was thinking when you said time kills deals, like... The time may be the cause, may be perceived as the cause of killing the deal, but actually it may be more indicative of the fact the deal shouldn't happen. Like if it is taking time, 
perhaps that means, wait, there is something wrong here, whether it's cultural, whether it's some sort of like personal tension that's going on. And I think, I think it's both. It's a, it's a symptom of having to dig deeper. So like there is, there is definitely an issue that needs to be resolved. Like good, good, the simple deals can be executed quickly. And, but it's also, um, it's also a question of psychology, right? Someone is, uh, is interested to sell like this uh, feeling can can go away so right. it also the deal you agreed on four months ago might not be look that valuable or vice versa it might look way too cheap at that point you know four months later when the business changes yeah i mean on our part we decided in advance we realized that we we're playing the long game and we'll need to do more than one MA. so we decided that if we hand uh, over a term sheet and we sign it, this deal is going to happen. We're not going to change terms. Right. We're not going to do anything post-term sheet, even if conditions in the market change or if something in the business is, is unexpected. We have long enough to fix it. But the, the hope is that VCs act that way as well, and, and, and we do. <laughs> but y- you just see when, when you spend too much time and things change, like you can have a lot of external pressures or internal influences to, to sort of rethink what was handshaken and I you know, the Israeli market is so built on trust and built on mutual respect that I think it's critical to maintain that. Yeah, I know I know of examples both on M&A and on VC deals where, where it didn't happen, but it might also be something that I, I learned at Bessemer, honestly, that you have to think long-term and build your reputation and, um, and just be a company that people want to work with and do business with. And it paid off in, in a great way. Like, we've become a destination of M&A and companies come to us because they know that um, our M&As have been successful and our deals have been actually executed. So they have the confidence in doing the deal and confidence post-deal that things will work out for them. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. I'll ask one last personal question because I know we're out of time. Um, if you weren't Ophir Rashef, CFO of Yachtpo in the high-tech world, what do you think you'd be doing? I'd probably be a bridge player. <laughs> You and my, my grandma. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> my, me and me and many other grandmothers. Next time you go to New York, let me know. I'd love to introduce you to her. She's she's ninety six, and thank God, still kicking in. Would love to. Looking yeah, for ni- bridge friends. Ninety six is definitely not the oldest person I've played bridge with. So uh, she'll be the sharpest ninety six year old you know. Do you play professionally? <laughs> I mean, is that? I I did before I uh, started with a proper career. Yeah, but uh, some of the some of the people I played with actually turned into a professional bridge playing career. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Ophir. This has been a real pleasure and hopefully helpful to many people in the Israeli ecosystem that are thinking about all right, what do I do with all with all this cash, or how do I expand my TAM, or how do I you know really tell a global massive story? And uh, M and A increasingly becoming part of it is is something for everyone to think about. So. Really appreciate you coming in. Thanks, Ariel. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, everyone, for listening to The B-Sides, the podcast exploring the many tactical and strategic decisions taken by founders and operators at every step of the startup journey. Be sure to subscribe wherever you might be listening. And if you want to share any feedback, you can find me on Twitter at Ariel Sturman. Have a wonderful day.